What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Jim, how you doing? Welcome to the platform. I'm doing great, Jerome, and thank you for having me. Now, thank you. This is a um, busy time. You know, you are, you know, a candidate for General Sessions Judge Division 6. Correct. And so uh, I'm interested in talking about it. You have a um, an interesting uh, legal background. I do. Um, very experienced, um, which I think is good for anybody that's running for General Sessions Judge. And so uh, can you just briefly tell us a little bit about that experience and then we can dive right onto it. Sure. I'll just give you the bio. Born here in Nash Vegas in 1961 and came back to go to Vanderbilt, class of 84. After that, started in politics, worked for Al Gore in Washington from 84 to 89. Yes, I am that old. And then after that, Governor McCorder here in Tennessee for two years and then law school. Uh, after law school, prosecuted in the district attorney's office here in Nashville for 13 years. Then I switched sides and became a criminal defense attorney. And I've been a criminal defense attorney for 16 years, so total Total 29 years, just shy of 30 years experience. I also had the good fortune of serving as the environmental court magistrate here in Nashville for 10 years as well. That is the court that oversees property standards and code violations. So mm. seen a lot, done a lot, learned a lot, and am still learning a lot. Um, I always like to give uh, our viewers and listeners, you know, a little bit of like background, like something that we don't, we may not be able to Google. Okay. Right. And so one of those things I like to ask is like, what inspired you to get into the criminal legal field sector? Um, I hate hate to say it. <laughs> I think it's really what more disinspired me. Mm. So, you know, I majored in political science and communications at Vanderbilt and thought I was going to go into politics and did go into politics. Started working for Gore when he was a congressman, then Senate, then presidential campaign in 1988. Um by the time 1989 came around, I was pretty burned out, mm -hmm. so thought I wanted to come back to Tennessee, and I did. I was lucky enough to get on with Governor McWhorter for two years. And then after seven years in politics, I sort of realized, you know, I really need something more stable. Uh, and, and law seemed like the way to go. I had knew, know, known a lot of people in the DA's office before I even went to law school. And so when I started law school, it was always with the assumption that I would be a prosecutor. And so that's what I did. So let's let's go into that prosecutor because you made mm -hmm. that switch, right? Sure. Um, what was your experience like in, in being a um, prosecutor? A prosecutor? Yeah. Yep. So hmm, I have a lot of different experiences as a prosecutor. <laughs> I really do. Um, you appreciate the difficulty uh, that the police department has. Mm -hmm. You work with victims of all shapes and sizes, from property theft to families of homicide survivors, and you help them through some of the darkest periods of their life, and that can be rewarding. Mm -hmm. You also try a lot of cases, and I really wanted to and enjoyed being a trial lawyer. I remember towards the end of my career, I was trying three cases a month. Wow. And, and jury trials is what I, I liked to do. I think looking back on my career as a prosecutor, I'm 
proud of what I did. Mm -hmm. I may not be sometimes proud of the way I did it. I can give you an example. Yeah, listen, yeah. What, what is an example? So it's a young man that I prosecuted repeatedly. And at first, he was 13 years old and charged with a homicide. And the case fell apart, and he got dismissed. And then soon after that, he got arrested for an aggravated robbery. And he was a juvenile, so we kept him in the juvenile system and sent him off to the Department of Children's Services for a while. And soon after he got out, he got arrested for another murder. Mm. And it was a robbery murder, him and two others. And the detective called me up and said, do you remember this kid? And I said, yes. And I said, well, I got him down here on a homicide. Can you come down here? And I said, sure. And I went down there, and I talked to him just like you and I are talking. Right. Because uh, I knew him, and he knew me. And I was, a, I, was a, uh, I was a jerk. And I looked at him, and I said, I won't mention his name. I said, hey, what were you doing robbing this guy? Did you need money for new Air Jordans? Right. Which was a arrogant, obnoxious, right. white man thing to say. Right. Some and lack he, of cultural competence. No, no, there. no, no. Yeah. And he looked at me, and he, he looked at me, and he said, no, Mr. Todd, I was trying to get money to get my brother and my mother out of the projects. Mm. And it was the biggest punch in the eye that I ever got mm. from a 16-year-old. And what makes that story worse is that the younger brother that he's referring to uh, about a year and a half later, got arrested on a homicide, mm. and his mother died about a year and a half later. And it was really at that moment that I realized that there was work to be done, right. for lack of a better term. And soon after that, I got on the Juvenile Justice Reform Commission. The Governor Sunquist started in an effort to rewrite the juvenile code to prevent what happened from happening again because it was clear that the juvenile system failed this kid. Right. And we, we, he got into the most restrictive rehabilitative program we had on that armed robbery and got out and bammo, you know, right back in. And uh, we worked two years on it, and it actually ended up, ironically, me fighting against the Juvenile Justice Reform Commission because that commission was made up of a lot of prosecutors. Right. And their, their solution was to lock them up and throw away the key. They actually tried to move the jurisdiction for juvenile law backwards, mm. meaning that if you were arrested on a certain crime at age 14, you were automatically an adult. Mm. And so I ended up turning around fighting them. Right. And... Uh, you know, we made a lot of recommendations. The legislature never enacted any of them. We still have the same juvenile problem we have today. Uh, you can check out my website, jimtodforjudge.com, and you can read an article that Tennessean wrote about that experience, you know, about right. that. But that whole experience with that young man uh, slapped the crap out of me and sort of got me on a path of justice reform right. back when I was a prosecutor. Right. So, so what does what does justice mean to you now, and what does that look like? And I know justice, you know, you hear this when yeah. or people like um, groups of people, we want justice. Mm -hmm. That can look different for different people and mm -hmm. mean different things. So, what does mm -hmm. that mean to you, and what does that look like to you in our current criminal legal system? That's a tough one. I thought you weren't gonna throw me any curveballs. Look, you look, man. I can this hit is, a curveball. This, this, hey, this was ninety. That was that was about. I was at eighty-five. That was a, a nasty one. slider, my friend. <laughs> um, 
You're right. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. I think if you just boiled it down to a simple definition, it's fairness. Okay. But um, justice to some people means public safety, community safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, justice to some people means equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, justice to some people means going through a system and coming out of it better than when you went in it. Right. And so different definitions for different people for justifiable reasons. Right. So you mentioned fairness. Sure. And um, you didn't get a really a chance at the, one of the forums I've seen you participate in to really to, to, to talk more about this point, but I'm going to throw it back at you about when we talk about black and brown folks. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, the criminal legal system. Mm-hmm. Some people say criminal justice, criminal legal. Some people say criminal punishment system mm-hmm. has not been quote unquote fair to black and brown folks, mm-hmm. black and brown youth. Um, how can we achieve fairness um, when it comes to black folks and specifically people in color mm-hmm. in this system? I'm glad I have more than 30 seconds on this stuff. So, the unfairness on black and brown individuals actually starts before the criminal justice system uh, with their arrest. And if you read the Driving While Black report, Kyle Mothershead, an attorney here in town, mm-hmm. um, you see how that starts. And I can, I, I, you know, I can give you another great story. Representing this gentleman up in Robertson County, and uh, he gets pulled over for quote unquote following too closely. Right? Search his car, find narcotics, he's arrested. He's black. And, you know, what the police were doing up there was they would sit on the side of the interstate. Now, as you know, when you police them on the side of the interstate, you're required to move over. Right. So when all the cars would move over, it would create pretty good line of traffic in that far lane. Right. So everyone was following too closely. Mm. So we pulled the video. And sure enough, our guy's like in the middle of eight cars that are all the same distance. He gets stopped. Nobody else does. He's black. So then we pull this, as it was a drug task force officer's arrest record, which was a lot of work. Guess what? 85% of the people he's stopping for traffic violations on the interstate are black. Mm. So we were able to use that to fight it. Right. Right. So that's where it all starts. And I think it's extremely, you know, I was a prosecutor for 13 years. And listen, police have a hard job. They really do. And for the most part, they're good people. But as a prosecutor, I kind of learned the tricks of the trade. And as a defense attorney, I was able to use my experience as a prosecutor to try and catch things that were unfair. And, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't care what kind of judge you're running for. You better have a darn good understanding of the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment, and you know the federal and state decisions behind it so you can call this stuff out from the bench right. and get rid of a lot of these cases before they can get in there. Right. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, unfortunately, a lot of black and brown defendants are not as well off and have poorer representation right and i'm not saying it's anybody's fault but when a person comes in and cannot afford an attorney 
you may get the public defender. And we have one of the best federal and, and, and county public defender's offices around. Mm -hmm. But they can't take everybody. Right. So if you don't get them, then you're going to get somebody who's fresh out of law school, right. who's in there taking appointed cases to make a living. Right. And they really don't have the experience to defend someone's liberty. Mm. And so as a judge, you need to, as much as you can, right. make sure that they're getting their Sixth Amendment uh, right to counsel during this difficult proceeding. So that's number two. And then number three, when it comes to treatment, punishment, rehabilitation, anybody needs to look at the reason the crime is happening. Right. I was talking to a guy yesterday. If your car is broken into and your whatever is stolen out of your car, you're going to come to court and you're going to want a piece of the guy that did its hide, right? Right. Well, as the judge, I want to know why it happened. Did it happen because of addiction? Did it happen because of mental health? Did it happen because he's just mean? Right. If I can stop or fix the cause of the problem, I'd certainly rather do that than incarcerate. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's not enough of that because not enough judges know the arrows that are available in your quiver to help. And if what's available it's not there. You need to find it. Right. So, so I want to talk on that a little bit more. What What are some creative ways then mm -hmm. for alternative punishment um, outside of incarceration that you would look to employ? You know, if sitting on the bench of you know General Sessions Division Six. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the Sheriff Department has a lot of good programs, but to get in those programs, you have to be incarcerated. So now we got to find programs that aren't part of incarceration. Right. Some of those are available through the probation department, but a lot of those are available through the community. The 413 Strong program is a great program that's community-based. Mm -hmm. Mental health court, drug court, really what we need more of in Sessions Court is what's called dual diagnosis treatment. Okay. Dual diagnosis is where a person has a mental health problem and they self-medicate with narcotics. And you can't get them off the narcotics until you can get their mental health problems fixed. Right. So we have some resources. We don't have enough. I strongly believe in the separation of powers. The legislature sets the laws. The judges enforce them. But judges need to tell people when we don't have what we need. And mm -hmm. so go to the legislature or go to the city council, like I have done on the bail reform thing, and say this is a problem we have and we need to fix. So we don't have all the resources that we need. Right. And, you know, one thing you see, saw it in juvenile court, I see it in, in uh, criminal court, is especially with narcotics trafficking. You know, I just, I'm glad I got an hour because I'll just tell you another story. Just on Monday, <laughs> you know, I went up to federal court and pled my guy, and he's going to serve 10 years in federal custody, right? Okay. His whole family was there to tell him goodbye. That's not a good way to start your week. Right. That's very depressing. Certainly better than the 20 to life he was looking at, but, you know, you get his pre-sentence report, and it reads exactly the same as everybody else's. Right. Born with a terrible set of cards. Mm -hmm. Never really had a chance. Stopped school at age nine. Started slinging drugs to help support his family. Got arrested, got on probation. Probation said get a job, so he worked at McDonald's, making $164 a week. 
Nothing wrong with that. I applaud people to do that. But when you're making $300 a day on the street, you ain't going to work at McDonald's for 164 a week. Right. So you go back to dealing drugs, you get caught again, you get six months to serve and more probation. You get back out there, you do it again, now you go to the Department of Corrections. You get back out there and you do it again, now you're federal court. Something's got to change that cycle. Again, look to the public sector. Right. Frank Abernathy, good friend of mine, former chair of the board chair of the Urban League. I was on board of the Urban League, met him back then. We have started a 501c3 foundation. And we are going to build a juvenile vocational center mm. that will teach juveniles trades, masonry, carpenter, electric, plumbing, welding. You ever had a plumber come to your house? Yep. How much you pay them before they leave? Yeah, a lot. A lot. A lot. Per hour. Yeah. Yeah. You can make a great living independently with a trade. And if we can teach these kids that, it may save one. It's like, it's like this quarterback that they recruited at Tennessee. This five-star guy. Mm -hmm. You get one guy, he'll tell the other guys. Right. If we can turn a couple of these juveniles around who are at risk, they may tell others, and we can, you know, get some of the people off this train. Right. No, I, I agree, and it's refreshing to hear you say that. Especially given the, how many houses are getting built around here? It's a lot. And is it are they getting built with our labor? Yeah. Uh, yep. No. Oh, they not. No. No. They're they're you know. The local people aren't, oh, aren't, yeah, aren't no, a part no, of this. No, you know, no, you, these con yeah. these contracting companies they coming come in here. All, all from yeah. all, all across the yeah. state. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's refreshing to hear you say that because um, I always wonder, you know, what could judges do beyond the bench, right? Well, you're you limited know. to what you can do on the bench. You right. really are. But you have a duty, mm -hmm. I'd say, even as an attorney, to if you see a problem, mm -hmm. Tell people who can try to help fix it. And right. if they can't, then try to fix it yourself. Right. I mean, there are right. a lot of... Kyle Mothershead's another great example. You know, he saw a huge problem, and he did the driving while black report. I mean, that's a, a great example of what people should be doing. Right. You mentioned something about resources. Yep. And this is where uh, I think cash bail, money bail comes into the play. Okay. Some folks believe that there shouldn't even be a bail, a cash bail. shouldn't even be money associated okay. with a body. Um, and we know again, bail affects black, brown, and poor folks. Yep. Um, which, which leads to another thing you said I wanted to to go into too about trial. If I don't have the money, mm -hmm. even though I know I'm innocent, mm -hmm. I might take those mm -hmm. ten years. You gotta take. Well, I, yeah. I might, I might take Just, whatever. I might right. take whatever plea is offered, even though I'm innocent because I don't have the right representation or I don't have the representation. I think they can, they can, they can justifiably prove my innocence because it was appointed to me, mm -hmm. or I don't have the money to afford it. Right. Right. So, so how does all that play into, you know, you've been on kind of all kind of sections yep. of this. Yep. Um, and, and what does that reform okay. look like? Okay, so let's talk about bail. Okay. Let's talk about bail. Bail is difficult. It pits two fundamental rights against each other, right? Mm -hmm. The right to be presumed innocent right. of the charge that's against you. So you should have nothing because you're presumed innocent. Right. Versus the right for the community to be safe against people accused of crimes and make sure they come back to court. So the, we are not an island, Nashville. We are one of 95 counties. We are controlled by the state legislature. The state legislature has written a law that says, if you are arrested, a judge will consider the following factors in determining whether you should post bail. Charge. Is it a charge property crime, personal crime? 
What's the likelihood of conviction? What are your ties to the community? How many relatives do you have here? Have you ever lived somewhere else? Do you have a record? Do you have a record of phase to appear? Mm -hmm. You look through that laundry list, and that will determine whether or not you have to post a cash bail. If you do, then and only then is the magistrate or judge supposed to look at the final factor, ability to pay. So if you, Jerome, and me, Jim, are charged with the same crime, Mm -hmm. same likelihood of conviction, same ties to the community, same record, same record of failures to appear, and I make $100,000 and you make $250,000, your bail should be over two times higher than mine. That's the way it's supposed to work. Right. Problems. First problem is that statute is not run through when a person is arrested. When you're arrested, you go before a magistrate. The only thing the magistrate has is a computer where they can look you up and they can look at the charge. They don't know a whole lot about you. They don't know your ties to the community. They don't know anything. And they'll make that decision. To, you, to get meaningful bail review, it could be six, seven, eight days before you're A, given a lawyer, and B, in front of a judge. Right. Well, in six, seven, or eight days, you've already lost your job. Right. Okay, so that's the problem. Knoxville is trying, keyword trying, to implement bail review within 24 hours. Mm. Appoint a lawyer, be in front of a judge within 24 hours. We need to try to do that too. Don't know how we're going to do it. It's going to be very, very difficult, uh, especially over weekends, right. holidays. But really that needs to happen. That's number one. Number two, the federal system, well, first off, Tennessee has a cash bail system. Right. The state legislature is highly unlikely to ever change that because a lot of the rural counties, if not most of the rural counties, are fine with it. Right. Federal court does not have cash bail. Mm -hmm. They make you post a bond. Mm -hmm. Here, sign this bond for $100,000. You run off, you owe me $100,000. Okay. So you run off. Now, granted, the federal government has the IRS. Right. So they can go after you and your family for tax, you know, all that kind of stuff. State doesn't have that. But what the feds have that we really need, which is the basis of my bail proposal, which is on my website, is pretrial probation officers. Mm-hmm. Right now, probation officers supervise people who've been convicted. <clears throat> right. So in federal court, if you or me charge the crime and the judge lets us out, they're going to have you supervised. They're going to make you come in once a week. You're going to have to pee in a cup. No guns, maybe electronic monitoring. They may come run search your house. They may do whatever is necessary, depending upon the charge. Judges would be more likely to release somebody without having to post a cash bond if they knew they were being supervised, because that takes care of that community safety element Mm -hmm. of bail. Mm -hmm. If you go in custody right now and you're released without having to post bail, are you supervised? No. Mm -hmm. You're given a text message saying, come back to court. If you post bond with a bonding agent, are you supervised? Nope. No, you're given a text message saying come back to court. You know who doesn't get text messages? Homeless people who don't have phones. Right. And then finally, to your point, people are in jail. They can't make bond. And the attorney comes to them and says, plead to this, time served, and probation. Right. Well, I don't want to plead to it because I didn't do it. I'm innocent. Right. Well, you got to stay in jail for six months to get a trial. I'll plead. Right. So you see the problem? Yep. It's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, Dawn Diener and others have worked really hard, tirelessly to try to help in this regard. And I'm not sure what the council will do, um, but it's a big issue. I want to get into um, that switch. 
you know, that prosecutors to defend. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of, why did you make the switch? Um, What led to that? Well, you want the truth or you want to lie? I want the truth. The truth is. You want the deep truth. The deep dish truth is that uh, my wife and I were fortunate enough to have children. And I knew I needed to make more money. And the state payroll was not going to do it. And so I went into private practice to make more money. I never really intended upon being a defense attorney per se, mm-hmm. but after being a prosecutor for 13 years, I realized that that's really what I knew best. Right. And so that's the sort of way I ended up. So we talked a little bit about this beforehand, but there's this thing out here. Yeah. There's this message. I'm going to read it so everybody can know um, verbatim what was said and so you can respond to it. Todd says that only when he switched from prosecutor to defense attorney did he realize that the people accused of crimes were real people. With real problems, I think is the end of that sentence. Yeah. But, and so, um, yeah. So, and that's the truth. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, what, you know, Todd thinks that defendants were animals. I mean, you know, come on. Again, another story. Uh, one of my first clients was a guy charged with narcotics trafficking. Mm-hmm. And he, um, there was an issue with the search, and he claimed that the police were looking in a window and that they couldn't have seen what they said they saw. Right. So, you know, I'm going up there myself to take a look. And it was a duplex up in North Nashville. And, you know, I went into the place, and it was really bad. There was mattresses on the floor where prostitutes would come and have sex for drugs. It was just a terrible, you know, mm-hmm. terrible situation. And... I left that duplex, and I noticed that the other half of the duplex was a young family that had a little girl about the age of my girl. Okay. And I, and I just remember thinking, I just don't know if I can do this. You know, this is, this is hard. And I went back, and I talked to my law partners, and I said, I, this is just this is hard. And they said, Jim, you've got to get to know these people. You've got to get to know where they came from. You've got to get to know their problems. You've got to get to know their families. You got to really get to know him. To be an effective defense attorney, you got to really get to know him. And they were right. And so getting to know your clients, and I'll use the term as people, and they'll may light me up on Twitter that I'm just it's it's <laughs> right. a term. Right. Getting to know them really well mm-hmm. uh, makes you try harder, I guess, for lack of a better term, but it also right. is harder because you hurt when they hurt. Right. And you see where they, where they came from and you see the problems they have and you see, you know, hey, I'm glad you got me probation, but now I got a felony conviction, which makes it even harder for me to get a decent job to support my family. So right. how am I going to get off this train? Right. right? So you, you feel it. You're with them and it hurts and it's hard. It's hard on you. It's hard on them. It's hard on everybody. So maybe I didn't say that well enough in the 90 seconds that I had to answer that question. But uh, when I became a defense attorney, it, I really, really came to appreciate the difficulty uh, that uh, these defendants have, which I didn't appreciate as a prosecutor until the, the incident right. with the young man. But, um, you know, when you're a prosecutor, you're focused really on helping victims through, mm-hmm. through something, and you certainly can empathize with defendants, but not nearly as much as you do or should do as a defense attorney. So... This leads me to this next question because you 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 was once that person. 
and I'm sure there's other attorneys that right. might have the same mindset right. of not really fully understanding right. just human beings, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's lack of um, cultural competence. Sure. Everybody grows up with you know exposure to certain things and non-exposure to others. We have blind spots. Sure. Um, as a judge, you will be allowed to be able to appoint yep. somebody to a case. Where does that come in at to where you're doing checks and balances where you're vetting possibly appointed attorneys to making sure they don't have particular blind spots that they are properly represent this particular man or woman in any particular case? It's a great question. So you will have to appoint lawyers uh, because there's just not enough public defenders to go around, number one. So if you appoint someone to a case and you know what they're charged with and you see deals that are made, right? Now deals, I hate to say deals, it, it, it's, a, it's a naked statement, but it's reality. Right. Plea bargains are based on a lot of factors and one of the factors is the strength of the case, right? Right. You know, I, I say this to people all the time, you know, if, if you're charged with murder and they're offering you life and the only witness against you is a half-blind person who was a quarter mile away, why are you going to take that? Right. You go to trial and lose, you get that. Now, if you're charged with murder and they're offering you 20 years and it happened in front of a Kroger with a video with 20 churchgoers on a bus, saw the whole thing, and you confessed and there's DNA, well, maybe you ought to think about that 20 years. Right. So in other words, if you see what the charge is and you can get a good understanding of what the proof is and you see a deal that is not near the other type of deals that are given out, by that prosecutor or fits the person, mm -hmm. lack of record, record, whatever, you got an obligation to say, hold up, right. what are we doing here? Something's not right. Pull the attorney aside and say, this doesn't look like a very good deal. Have you tried this? Have right. you thought about this? I'm not, you know, have we thought about this program? Is there some other alternative than locking this person? So you have to, you have to intervene. Right. Okay. It's good to know because, you know, Sometimes judges don't intervene. <laughs> well, it also, on the other side of the coin, I mean, if right. there's a person charged with the DUI fourth and the blood alcohol is 0.25 and there was an accident and they're offering him a first, you're going to say, why are we doing this? Right. You know what I mean? Restorative justice. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, a lot of different definitions. A lot of definitions and... Um, this has been used a lot lately. People throw it around. People it's a catchphrase. People are throwing around. We want restorative justice. We do. Um, how do you feel about restorative justice yeah. and, and what does that mean for <laughs> Nobody public? feels bad about restorative <laughs> and justice. And what does that mean for public safety? And what, did that, what does that realistically look okay. like for the, the, both the, sides? The definition of restorative justice is for people to go through the justice system and be made whole without incarceration. Right. Generally, that's, that's the goal. That can take place through mediation. That can take place through community court. That can also take place through what we have now is what's called the diversion system, where you plead guilty to a crime, you agree to do some certain conditions. If you do so successfully, then your case is dismissed and wiped off your record. There's under advisement pleas, pretrial diversion, judicial diversion. There's all kinds of ways to achieve that. And right. under any possible scenario, that should be your goal. You know, a... A federal judge, in an opinion that I like to use a lot, said that a felony conviction is a life 
sentence. Right. It affects everything from your ability to get housing to your ability to get a job, which affects your ability to get housing, your ability to vote, which is a fundamental right, mm-hmm. bear arms all across the board. So you, you know, saddling somebody with a felony, even though they're getting probation, sometimes is not the best deal. So whenever possible, you want to try to find a way to use the resources that we have, whether they be the laws that we have or the community-based resources we have, to try to get people through the system without having a record and making sure the victims are cool, Mm -hmm. right? So the victim can sit down and say, hey, you broke in my car, I need this... 525 bucks to fix the window. And why did you do it? Why'd you do it? I want to feel, you know, go and, and you know, makes the victim feel better too. Right. So that's what restorative justice to me is all about. Um, do you see a point where we see more of that happen often in our criminal legal system? Yes, I do. I see a concerted effort both by the judicial system and by the legislature. I don't like to give the legislature credit for a whole lot, but they are slowly opening up the gateway for expungements. I mean, early on, couldn't get anything expunged. Then you could get misdemeanors expunged. Now you can get some felonies expunged. Mm -hmm. Now you can get some felonies with combination of misdemeanors expunged. Now you can get big stuff expunged if it's over 30 years old. I mean, every year we seem to see a better widening of what's eligible to be expunged. The problem is, who knows about it? So the attorneys need to know about it. The, right. the attorneys, you know, and, and I don't like to give a whole lot of points to Williamson County either because it's a tough place to practice law. But those judges down there will, in the plea colloquy, when you take a plea, they will go over your expungement rights with mm. you. So, it, you know, if you got an appointed attorney after the plea, you don't have an attorney anymore, right? right? Even if you got a higher attorney after the plea, you don't have an attorney anymore. Right. So at least the litigant knows what their rights are or are not regarding getting their their record expunged. Nashville is growing. I don't know. It was at one point 100 people moving here a day. It might be dwindled down a little bit because of the pandemic. Maybe 80 people moving here a day now. Um, that means possibly a lot more people coming through our criminal legal system for various reasons. Um, Eight-year term, mm-hmm. almost a decade, mm-hmm. rounded on up. Um, how does the growth in Nashville affect what public safety looks like and affect what General Sessions Court may look like? Great question. So what we, what you, what, you know, I was the environmental court judge for 10 years, and that's right. property standards. And so what you see is you see people go into these neighborhoods that generally have been poor, right? And they'll get a house, and they'll tear it down, and they'll build a nicer house. And then they'll see all these houses around their house that's keeping the property value down, so they'll start reporting all these people around them for code violations and try to run them off so they can then tear down that house and build more houses, more, more houses, more houses. So, you get a lot, so the, it starts really with those, even those property standard cases. You get so many people in, in an area that the uptick in crime is just a natural consequence. Not that property standards is crime, but right. it's just, you know, we're, we're having an explosion of people, and more people means more crime. So the court system has to, you know, be able to handle it. And, you know, the legislature and the council can add more courtrooms. Right. Um, 
We went from four criminal courts to six criminal courts about 10 years ago. I don't know what the latest caseload study would show on that. The COVID pandemic backed up the court system terribly. Mm -hmm. We have 11 general sessions courts. I think that's probably fine for where we are right now. Um, if, if you had, if you asked me where the bottleneck is, I think it's in the appellate court level okay. because it just takes so long for a case to get from a trial through the appeals process. I mean, we have a guy right now on death row, Oscar Frank Smith, and his case had just concluded when I started in the DA's office in 1993. Ooh. Sheesh. So the uptick in population is going to mean more people. More people generally needs more crime. More crime needs more courtrooms. More courtrooms needs more prosecutors, more, more defense attorneys. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult issue. Yeah, um, it seems like we're going to have to get creative with what we do in our court system, whether that's more virtual stuff, um, is that more night court things happening so people won't be able to, you know, miss miss work? Yeah, I think that's the, the first thing, if I'm elected, is what I'm going to want to look at is, is immediate bond review. I don't like virtual court. I really don't. I really understand it's an inconvenience for people to have to come to the courthouse mm -hmm. to miss work, to go down there and park, whether you're a defendant or a victim or, a, or an attorney or whatever. But um, the pattern jury instructions are pretty clear right. about credibility. And there's even a, you know, when, it, when I mean by pattern jury instructions is after a jury trial, the judge reads these instructions to the jury. And one of the things that the judge says is, you have seen these witnesses. You mm -hmm. are to presume that they are telling the truth. You can presume they're lying based on many factors. Have they been impeached? Their mannerisms, the way they look, you know, right. all this kind of stuff. So on Zoom, you can't really get a good feel for the genuineness of a witness or a defendant. Right. Right. And, or a victim. And and so I, you know, as an attorney, would certainly much rather cross examine somebody in person right. than on a on a Zoom. I just had a federal trial a while ago and you know, because of COVID, they were all wearing masks. Right. It was awful right. because you couldn't tell what they were thinking. But, it, you know, I really think that the legal system needs to rely on in-person court appearances as much as possible. Now, I understand for bail review cases like that, when it's just the defendant or something, you can have them on the screen right. or whatever. But but for, for litigation, I think you have to be there. Court watch is a thing that community uses to figure out kind of mm -hmm. what judges are doing, mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. happens in mm -hmm. the courtroom, mm -hmm. what is not happening. Yep. Um, because I think most people probably don't know what's happening because they don't need to go to court. Right. Uh, but you know, our tax dollars are going into it. Yep. Maybe we should know what's going on and what and how judges are making decisions. And also, I think a good way to build rapport right. with judges, especially if you're a community organization or something like that, to kind of mm -hmm. see kind of what justice looks like in this particular courtroom. And so, when elections time come up, you can be able to you know properly sure. understand and know what's going on. Uh, what's your thoughts on court watch? One hundred percent need it. The question is, how do you do it? Right. Again, I'm old. <laughs> I'm not that old, but I, I was working for Gore in the Senate in the 80s when the bill came up to televise the United States Senate. Believe it or not, a long time ago, they didn't televise the House and the Senate. 
And a lot of the senators were against it because they thought it would create grandstanding, mm. that it would create people coming in there and arguing things that just didn't need arguing just so they could hear themselves talk and be on TV. And I think there's some truth to that. And I, I worry that a lot of these court cases that have been televised, uh, either nationally or not, have drawn out longer and have, you know, I think it affects whether you get fair justice if, if you're on TV. Right. I do sometimes. That said, though, people need to know what these judges are doing. And there are ways to do that, but there are hard ways to do that. Right. You know, administrative Office of the Courts published statistics about whether you've been appealed, overturned, reviewed, what kind of punishments are coming out of what county, and so on and so forth. But you got to really be, a, not a nerd, but you got to really be a bookworm to go down and dig deep into that rabbit hole. Right. So I would rather have somebody like you, Jerome, uh, or somebody else, you know, starting a program where you just report, you know, because now we have social media. You can do a report. You know, the, there's the Rooker Report, which is a clerk's office down there, but in Howard Gentry, they don't, they don't do any reporting about what judges are sentencing to this, that, and the other. Right. Um, but somebody needs to start doing that because, you know, we've had a lot of bad judges. Right. Let's just be fair. I practice law as far as West Virginia to the north and Georgia to the south, and I've been in front of good judges and bad judges, and right. you, you, can, you can tell what they are. What would make you a good judge? Or what makes you a good judge? I think your perspective okay. and your experience. I think, obviously, you know, I don't want to be basic, but knowledge of the law, knowledge mm -hmm. of the Constitution, mm -hmm. uh, knowledge of the rules of criminal procedure, civil procedure, because General Sessions has civil court jurisdiction as well. Uh, patience. I think you got to know you're not the smartest person in the room. You got to be willing to learn, even though you're the judge. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to avoid rogue fever at all costs, um, and and treat everybody with respect. I know that sounds like common sense, and it is common sense, but you probably know better than I do that there are a lot of judges that don't treat people that way. And again, going back to the environmental docket, I learned that if you just are patient with people, you explain the law to them, you let them get their say in court. Right. That's really important. Let them vent. Uh, give them their fair, fair, fair shake. They won't feel like the court system's shafting them. They'll feel like the court system's helping them. Right. You have two opponents. I do. You know, and at this at this point in in careers when you're running for a judge, everybody's smart. Everybody's you know uh, knowledgeable, right? Sure. <laughs> everybody's all these amazing things, right? Amazing attorneys and lawyers sure. and all this stuff, right? And so, so I'm a, I'm a, I already answered that part for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I've done this enough. I know okay. I answered this part for you. So with all that being said, knowing your two other candidates sure. are smart, intelligent, sure. great attorneys, um, have good tenures as well. What separates you sure. from them? A lot. Number of years of experience. I've been doing this a lot longer than one of my opponents and longer than my other opponent. I'm also the only candidate that's worked both sides in the criminal justice arena. And, you know, I think that's extremely important because I learned a lot in my 13 years as a prosecutor that I've used as a defense attorney and vice versa. And I think to be effective, you have to understand how both sides think. Right. From the civil side of General Sessions Court, again, I'm the only candidate that's had experience as a judge. I was a judge for 10 years on the environmental court docket, which, as I mentioned, is primarily pro se, unrepresented litigants who are 
not like being told what they can do about their property. Right. And, you know, you have to treat treat the people in the general sessions small claims court because it could be me against Vanderbilt or me against Macy's or me against Beeman Automotive, right? right. Or me against my landlord or me against my contractor who, you know, and, and I won't have it a lawyer, but they will. Right. So you got you to gotta help them. You got to treat them fairly. I have the, the experience there. And I'll be honest with you because this aggravates the you-know-what out of me. I hear all these people talking about bail reform. I hear all these people talking about justice reform. Well, where were they in the 90s mm-hmm. when I was on the Juvenile Justice Reform Commission and when I was fighting off these prosecutors who wanted to try juveniles at 14 years old automatically as an adult? Okay? Right. Uh, the Drug-Free School Zone Act. Ten years ago, I wrote an editorial to the Tennessean saying this has got to go right. because it unfairly affects inner-city minority defendants. Right. And it does. And, uh, you know... Fortunately, the legislature has fixed it to a degree. It's not perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better. Right. Was it 1,000 feet now? Instead of no, it's gone down. It, first off, you know, I don't know how much time we have left. Yeah, but, we got as much okay. as so you want. Yep. The rural counties, you know, you got your elementary school, your middle school, and your high school. They're all right next to each other, right? Right. So I get that. But in Davidson County, when it was 1,000 feet, there wasn't a square inch of Davidson County that wasn't within 1,000 feet of a school, daycare, church, or park, right? Right. Number two, the Court of Appeals ruled that it doesn't matter if the transaction is within the school zone, but even if you travel through the school zone, right? Right, even if the school is closed. On an August Saturday afternoon, Mm -hmm. right? So I had a client driving up I-65 with some drugs, and he passed John Trywood over to school right on I-65. So he got charged with a school zone violation in the summertime. And I just thought that was just absolutely ridiculous. Not only that, but it raises the level of felony up one and makes it non-probatable or parolable. So you're looking at... Possession with intent to distribute over half a gram of cocaine in a school zone, which, again, could be August on a Saturday night on I-65, is 15 to 25 to serve, which is the same as second-degree murder and child rape. That was insane. So now it's back down to 500 feet. But what's most important is that there has to be proof that the the drug transaction in some way or effect was involved around a school activity, okay? So if you want to be stupid enough to go sell drugs right outside of a Hunter's Lane football game, go do it, but you're going to get hurt. Right. You're going to get punished. Right? So I get that. But it's a lot better than it was. Going back to your question, what are these other, where, what are, where, where are these other candidates mm-hmm. you know, about that? Everybody gets up there, I'm for bail reform, I'm for bail reform, I'm for bail reform. Okay. Where's your plan? Right. You know, I saw a problem. I've seen a problem. I've gone to the Metro Council with it. I've talked to a lot of the council people. I don't know what they'll do about it because it's a budget issue. But, I mean, I've seen, I've been working with justice reform both as a prosecutor and a defense attorney for 30 years. So, number of years of experience, diversity of experience, bench experience, and judicial reform experience. I'm 60 years old. I'm running for one term and one term only. I'm not going to sit up there the rest of my life. I want to end my career giving back. I want to end my career sharing what I've learned. And I've learned on this campaign that there's still a lot more to learn. All right. I was going to ask you that, you know, after 30 years, you mm-hmm. know, sure. on why we're running for judge now. Yeah. And so it's just, this that's how it. You, that's how you want to end it. This that's how, how I want to end it. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I really. Do you really believe I, one term is, eight years no, is a long time. Now. Eight years is a long time. But do you really I believe. I see judges that serve forever and they get tainted and they get biased. I've seen good judges turn bad. 
And I just think eight years is a long time, and that's all you need, you know. Um, and plus, I'll be 68, and I, I'm not looking to work the rest of my life. I got right. kids and a wife and all that wonderful stuff. But the rest of life. To, to yeah, but I really, right. I just, I want, and, I, and I'm very committed to uh, getting this juvenile vocational center off and running. Mm -hmm. And I, so I want to uh, spend my, my next eight years uh, trying to help the system, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. people in the system, whether they be defendants, victims, or whatever, and getting that juvenile justice uh, vocational center up and running uh, to help get people off the same darn train that ends them up in federal court serving right. a bunch of time. Now, I want to end on I want to end on this note, Jim. Um, is there anything that um, we didn't get to touch on that that's a part of your platform? Just something that's really near and dear to your heart. Something that maybe I didn't I didn't bring out of you in this. The only thing interview? that I'll I'll say is that um, when I started, let's let's talk about women. We like women, uh, and I've tried hard to. Uh, promote women on the bench. I was Judge Angie Dalton's campaign manager in 06. I was Anna Escobar's finance director when she first run, ran, and I was Jennifer Smith's treasurer when she first ran. And I'm glad to say that all three of those people are on the bench doing a great job. I have a very strong-willed 17-year-old daughter, and I want to give her every opportunity that I had and even more because mm -hmm. I know that she'll make a great difference. And I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, in my 30 years of practicing law, that women have, you know, more women have gotten on the bench and more women have become lawyers. I'm partners with a woman, Katie Hagan, um, fantastic lawyer, and and I want, I've enjoyed doing that and seeing that. That would be the only thing that I don't think we've talked about. Well, Jim, I really appreciate your time, um, but I also want to give you a moment to tell people how they can support you. Where can they go to do that? I'll tell you where they can go. They can go to the Howard School, punch <laughs> the button by Jim Todd's name, and they can do that this week. Then early voting opens up uh, next week to more locations, right. and Election Day is May 3rd. That's how they can support me is their vote. I All mean, right. people got their heads beat in for the right to vote decades ago, and only 30,000 people voted in this election eight years ago, and that's terrible. Yeah. My wife says that having a, a good judge is like Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. You never want to have to use it, but you want a good one when you go. Right. So, vote. Well, Jim, I appreciate your time. Your Thank you. This is an hour? This. Yeah. It's the quickest hour of my life. <laughs> it goes by fast when you're having fun. It does. And next time, I just make sure I cut all the questions. We're going to do two minutes, and that's it. <laughs> God, I hate that. Hey, thank you for what you do. Uh, thank you, Jim. Till next time. Till next time. Bring you back to talk about the, the, the Juvenile Vocational Center. All of that good stuff. Okay. All let's right. do it.